Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, talking today about faith, in specifically in the sense of trusting God. And uh, I, I want to make sure you understand credit where credit's due. The, I'm kind of pinch hitting today for, for Dr. Jerry Small. The essence of this uh, message, the outline, the fundamental principles, they were, he was formulating all of this, uh, but uh, he's well into his 80s right now, and the, and the effects of age uh, have him dis despairing of being able to get through an entire sermon and have his voice hold up. So uh, I'm kind of doing this on his behalf, and I, I hope uh, it's faithful to what he was originally conceiving. More importantly, I hope it's faithful to God's word and what God has for you today. And uh, so let's invoke his blessing on our time together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Uh, Lord, I thank you for pulling this body of believers together here. Uh, it's such a great thing to, to have the fellowship of believers in a local church like this. Uh, Lord, help us to be an effective body, building each other up in the faith. Uh, Lord, I pray that this time will be honoring to you. All that we've done, all that we've said, all that we sang, may it be honoring to you. And Lord, uh, we look to receive a blessing from you. Uh, open us up to your word and help us to incorporate that into our lives. Lord, we uh, praise your holy name and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I, I really love the uh, last song in the, in the set that talks about God made a way where there was no way. And uh, I, I've used that phrase several times myself. I really believe that that's how God operates. It's, it's the fundamental story of our salvation, in fact. We were completely hopeless. Uh, we were, had this infinite debt load of sin. And uh, there was no way. There was no way to heaven. There was no way to reconciliation with God. He made a way uh, where there was no way. We're going to see some instances today also from the Old Testament patriarchs where God made a way where there didn't seem to be a way. And uh, so, all right, let's get, in, let's get into it without further delay. Um, understand that we're sort of picking up some of the themes of some faith messages that we've had before. Uh, you remember, I don't know, a couple years ago or so, Pastor Walker preached through the book of Habakkuk where it says in there, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, we also, just about a year ago, had a whole series on without faith it's impossible to please God. So some of these themes will, will be coming back through, uh, but we're specifically looking about the living by faith thing. So we want to understand, first of all, are you a person of faith? Well, you're here, right? So I'm trusting that at some level you are a person of faith. Um, who are the righteous? The righteous of those are those who... Uh, are justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to get into all the particulars of that, but that is the essence of the gospel message. And if you're here today and you don't understand what I just said by that, if that's not clear in your minds, please don't leave here today until you get it clarified. Come talk to me afterward, talk to one of the elders, talk to the person next to you in the chair, whatever. Make sure you don't leave here without being clear on that point uh, because it has eternal implications for you, seriously. But then we want to understand what's meant by live by faith. It involves your lifestyle. It involves how you respond to life's challenges and, and the temptations that come your way. It has to do with your, your testimony in the world and what the outside world thinks of you. What's your, what's your reputation in the world? We're going to explore a lot of those things. 
what we want to ultimately get to is answering the question, are you ready for the direction in which the culture seems to be going? Um, by that I mean since the Christian principles were woven into the very fabric of our, of our nation, uh, of our founding documents, uh, that's an entire sermon in its own right. I'd love to, to talk with you about that sometime. Nowhere near time to get into it today. But what I would tell you, what I would observe is that since at least the 1960s or so, as a practical matter, we've abandoned those principles as a people in practical living. Right? We're, we're, not, we're not recognizing the principles of God's word in our daily lives as, as a nation in this secular culture right now. As Ravi Zacharias has observed, everything is being desacralized. All right, uh, sex, marriage, even life itself, it's removing the sacredness as the secularism of our day takes over. Are you prepared for life in a culture that is that secular? Are you ready for life in what Paul called the last days? He was warning Timothy about the last days 2,000 years ago. If he was talking about it then, we are way much closer to the last days now the ultimate, uh, uh, the consummation, the climax of all of human history. He said it this way, understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times, times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of that going on in our culture today, right? So what we want to get to is to the point of, do you really trust God to operate in this kind of environment, right? And, and what we're going to do is get some background today based on some examples of some Old Testament patriarchs, see how they lived, how they were operating with God in this whole trust uh, element, and then try and get to where do we need to be to be ready for this environment. Um, and that's going to be more the application of, of next week. Okay, so that's the basic outline. We're going to look today at three uh, Old Testament patriarchs um, telling their story, drawing a few observations, and then we're going to dive in a little deeper on some of these points with personal application more next week. Okay, so it's actually going to be kind of the whirlwind tour. Uh, there's, there, I'm going to have to leave out a lot of detail, understand. Um, and just, it's go, I'm going to be dumping a lot of information on you. Try and hang in there. Try and follow the main thread through the whole thing. And uh, we'll see if we can get to the point at, at, by the end and have it all make sense, right? So buckle up, here we go. We're starting out with, uh, with this guy, Joseph. Now, this is not uh, the Joseph of the Christmas story. Right, this is about 1,500 years earlier than this. This is one of the sons of, of Jacob, who was the father of the entire nation of Israel. Okay, that's the guy we're talking about. And in his, uh, his uh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me go back here just a minute. I want to make sure that you understand. He, we're going to see as we walk through his life that he is the victim of treachery multiple times. All right, he's, he betrayed several times. Against all odds, though, he continues to display trust in this God that isn't always obvious that he's there. 
right? Isn't always obvious that he's involved in what's going on. And you'll see because of his desperate circumstances why he might be a little confused. But ultimately, he rises to power, uh, second highest official in the land, and uh, some amazing things happen. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll read about all that here shortly. Uh, we're going to start off, though, when he's 17 years old. All right. By this point, it has become patently obvious that he is the favorite of his father, Jacob, also known as Israel. And because of that, all of his brothers hated him. You might, you might identify with that, right? Anytime you're playing favorites in the family, there's going to be resentment, of course. Joseph didn't help anything, though, by, by relating to his brothers these dreams that he was having. The upshot of the dreams were basically how they would all be subservient to him and come bow before him. How to win friends and influence people, right? Tell the others that they're going to be subservient to you, right? Love it. So, so he makes it even worse. At, at that point, they've had enough of this guy, right? Given the opportunity, they just off him. Get rid of this clown, right? They almost did in Genesis 37, later in the chapter. But instead, they sell him to a bunch of Ishmaelites that are passing by. So now think about it, though. Right? Put yourself in Joseph's place. Um, you're, you're sold into slavery, as it were, by your own brothers, taken away from your land, your customs, your family, your parents that you love, and you wind up in Egypt, totally foreign place, don't know the language, don't know the culture, and overmore, you're a slave there. The Ishmaelites sold them to Potiphar, captain of the guard to Pharaoh. But observe this, as we read through in Genesis 39, if you, if you went there, um, and I encourage you to do this, we're going so fast through all this, you can read about all these stories, I've given you the references, make note of it and go back and read it later. But we see that even as a slave, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed, to the point that Potiphar just made him overseer of his entire household. Joseph's basically running the show for this guy Potiphar, as a slave. Well, it didn't take long before Potiphar's wife's wandering eye noticed Joseph, and she kind of comes on to him repeatedly. Uh, he, trying to be an honorable man, rebuffs her advances at every turn, and finally she just gets frustrated with him, uh, with the whole business, and turns around and accuses him of trying to assault her. Well, that doesn't go well for Joseph, as you can imagine. He winds up in prison. So here's a guy, his faithfulness and morality is rewarded with betrayal. And he goes from bad to worse. He was a slave in a foreign land, now he's in a dungeon in a foreign land. Put yourself in his place. Think about it. You hear the clank of the bars behind you as you're incarcerated in this dungeon somewhere through no fault of your own, trying to do the right thing. Anybody feeling mildly depressed about that situation, right? I mean, is it just me that feels like, man, I would be in a very bad place at that point? Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's look at his time in prison. The fact is, though, even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph to the point of he takes over in prison, right? He's a prisoner, and now he's running the show in the prison. Now, he's still in the prison. I'm not saying it's a good situation for him. But the indomitable nature of this guy, Joseph, uh, trying to make the best of every situation. And so even the keeper of the prison noticed that uh, this was an extraordinary young man who 
uh, was worthy, was trustworthy. Now it came to pass that uh, one of um, one of Pharaoh's servants, his cupbearer, he got upset with him, threw him in the jail, and it's, it's interesting to note if you follow the story in Genesis 40 that in the midst of his own suffering, right, this is an unpleasant place to be, but Joseph noticed that this cupbearer was particularly troubled, as it turns out, by some dreams he was having. There was another guy involved. There was a baker also that was thrown in, in jail. It, things don't go as well for the baker. You can read about that if you want. Pick, pick up the Bible. But for the cupbearer, Joseph interprets his dream for him that, that he's, it's going to go well with him. In a couple of days, he's going to be restored to his office, and it'll be great. Pharaoh will love him again, and it'll all be fine. So Joseph asked this cupbearer, hey, look, it's going to go well with you. Remember me before Pharaoh, will you? I'm in this pit here through no fault of my own. I don't belong here. Plead my case to the king, will you, please? Cupbearer forgets him. And he continued to languish in the pit for two whole years. Now, can you imagine? Think about it. He, he finally gets a, a ray of hope. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm helping this cupbearer out. He's going to have an in with the, with the king. Maybe he can get me out of this stinking place. But a day passes, another day, and another day. Endless, seemingly endless days pass. Uh, do, do you feel the, the discouragement of shattered expectations? This is where Joseph is living. Finally, though, there's a turn in the story. It seems hopeless, and that's the way work, God works a lot of times, when it seems most hopeless. That's when the break in the story happens. Turns out Pharaoh's starting having some dreams. Really messing him up. He doesn't know what's going on. He's very troubled. And his cupbearer finds out, and he remembers, hey, hey, boss, I know this guy. Joseph, he's sitting in your jail right now in your dungeon. He, he, told, he foretold what my dream was going to be, and it was right. So Joseph's brought into Pharaoh. Notice this, though. This is important. Joseph is giving God glory. He says, it's not me. I'm nothing special. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Notice the humility in that statement. Okay. So he provides the interpretation. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, it's going to be that there's going to be seven years of great prosperity but followed by seven years of severe famine, so bad that everybody will quickly forget that there was ever seven years of prosperity. That's how bad it'll be. But he also offers a recommendation. You don't just come in to the king with a problem. You, you offer an ex, a, a, a recommendation, a solution, and thus he does. In the good years, he says, let's build a reserve. All right, And then all that reserve from the, from the prosperous years, that'll carry us through the lean years. Pharaoh says, great idea. In fact, you're just the guy to put it in practice. And he elevates Joseph to second in command in all of Egypt. He also gave him this new name, Zaphoneth Paneah. I don't speak Egyptian. Uh, a lot of commentators aren't sure what it means, but I did find these. Just throwing it out there for you. The one who furnishes the nourishment of life. The preserver of the age. I, I like that one, right? Savior of the world. Uh, kind of presaging the, uh, the Lord Jesus himself in that regard. Uh, it also occurred to me, I, I never thought about it before, but when I was going through the study, kind of wonder what Potiphar's wife is thinking right, right about now. Right, she had him incarcerated 
inappropriately, falsely accused, and now he's, he's the second in command. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that, I don't know, just kind of wondering, but we, we start building to the climax. We see Joseph's dream, as, as Pharaoh's dream began to play out, Joseph puts the plan into action. You can read all about it in Genesis 41 there. As the famine took hold everywhere, not only in Egypt, but across the entire region, we see Joseph's dreams becoming fulfilled. His brothers show up, come down from, from Canaan to try and find food. They hear that there's food in Egypt. There's not food anywhere else. So they come down. They bow before Joseph in desperation, just seeking some food. Now, at this point, they don't realize it's Joseph. They just think it's some Egyptian guy who can give them some food, maybe. But we see a complex interchange between Joseph and his brothers before he reveals himself to them, where he's kind of testing them. seems almost like he's toying with them a little bit. Uh, read all about that in, in the uh, Genesis 42 there. But finally, he reveals himself to his brothers. The ultimate an, uh, sto- end of the story is that, that Israel is preserved through the famine. And, and, and that's key because um, we take these observations away. All right. Number one, first notice that this arrogant adolescent, right, who was talking to his brothers about how he's going to be ruling over them and everything, he learned humility through his trials so that when he was brought in before Pharaoh, he was giving God glory. He's not promoting his own greatness. Also note that he kept a positive attitude despite really nasty circumstances. I mean, it was bad, and I won't pretend that it wasn't bad for him. But he, he refused to, to give in to that. And sort of the poster child for if life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? Um, he was a trustworthy slave, and he was a model prisoner. Two circumstances I don't think any of us would want to be in, and yet he proved faithful in all of that. But it's key to see that through his repeated betrayals, all of that put him in the right place at the right time for God's purposes, and Joseph knew it. See, in Genesis uh, chapter 45, he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. So think about the chain of events now. All right? If he hadn't been sold into slavery by his brothers, he would have never been in Potiphar's house to have a run-in with Potiphar's wife. And if he hadn't had that business with Potiphar's wife, he would have never ended up in jail. If he wasn't in jail, he wouldn't have been there to interpret the cupbearer's dream. And if he hadn't interpreted the cupbearer's dream, then he wouldn't have known that Joseph could do the same for Pharaoh. And if he hadn't been pulled in to interpret Pharaoh's dream, then he would never have been in a position to execute the plan to store up goods in the the good years to carry them through the lean years. And if he hadn't been there to execute that plan, then lots of people would have died throughout Egypt, lots of people would have died in Canaan in all likelihood, including Israel, and especially his son Judah, through whom the Savior was to come according to prophecy, right? So all of this was happening to Joseph, and it was all part of God's plan, including the provision of the Christ, ultimately, some 1,500 years later. But Joseph could hardly have known any of this at the time. When he's rotten in the pit, it is not at all obvious that there is some plan to make all of this work out well. So I would suspect that even though Joseph was keeping a positive attitude about everything, he had to be wondering, like, what is God up to? What, where is he in all of this? 
Still, the eternal perspective is what allowed Joseph to reject the resentment. I mean, you know, you could understand if he was a little resentful toward his brothers for all the agony that he had been through for, for some 13 years, but he doesn't. He, he rejects revenge. He offers forgiveness instead. He says this in Genesis 50, Do not fear. You meant evil against me. And make no mistake, evil is evil. Bad is bad. But still, God meant it for good. In other words, God can take even the evil that people do and incorporate it uh, miraculously, amazingly, into his plan to achieve a greater good. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Okay, uh, that's Joseph. Uh, moving on to Moses. We, we see a faithful servant leader. He's going to be raised in royalty, wind up going into exile in Midian. Uh, he's going to spend 40 years as a lowly shepherd. Prince, now a shepherd. And then he's ultimately going to return as a matured leader to get uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt at the age of 80. He's going to be led into a, an impossible situation by the Red Sea by God. We're going to talk about that. And then ultimately he's going to lead Israel through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. So a little bit of background. Uh, boy, how times change, right? As it was in the day of Joseph, Israel was beloved in Egypt. They loved Joseph and all his family because he was basically kind of their savior, right? But here's the thing. There arose a new king in, uh, over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this guy was kind of afraid of how big and strong the nation of Israel was getting in their midst. And he was afraid that they might turn around and fight against them in the event that there was uh, somebody else making war with them or whatever. So his solution was, let's, let's suppress them. Let's enslave Israel. But as is often the case with God's people, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread out through the land. So plan B, genocide. He said, okay, here's the new edict. All male babies born to the uh, Hebrews, kill them. Well, Moses' mother wasn't as much afraid of the king as she was of God, and she hid Moses at birth. But after a few months, it was kind of becoming impossible to keep him hidden. So the story goes, in Exodus 2, you can read about it, she floats him in this basket down a Nile uh, into the bulrushes and where he's providentially found and spared by Pharaoh's daughter, who raises him as her own son. Now, this is kind of an interesting situation. I mean, think about it. Um, do you think maybe Pharaoh's daughter had Pharaoh wrapped around her little finger or what? This is in direct defiance of his command. She finds this little Hebrew uh, baby and not only doesn't kill him, but brings him into the palace. Moses, as a Hebrew baby, being raised in the palace of this Pharaoh who said, we should kill all these babies. It's a very ironic situation. Okay. Um, but now as Moses is growing up, what we find is that he begins to identify with his own people. Right? Though he's raised as an Egyptian, he is actually a Jew. And he, and he, he goes out and, and begins to think of himself more in terms of being a Jew. And this is the way the writer of Hebrews put it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the reward. That is the greater reward, the reward from God, okay? Well, as it goes on, one day he saw uh, an Egyptian uh, mistreating a fellow Jew, so incensed by all that, he struck down the Egyptian. Uh, probably overreacted in this case. Murder isn't a good way to deal with that situation. Nevertheless, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. All right. Moses fled from, from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Uh, I want to get into all the details, but when he was in Midian, he rescued Jethro's uh, daughters who were trying to get some water for the sheep, uh, for her father's sheep, from some other shepherds who were, who were trying to keep them away. And, uh, and Moses injected himself into that situation and saved them. Uh, you can read about it in Exodus 2. Um, he goes on to marry one of these daughters, Zipporah, and then he takes up uh, the job of shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. Again, he's going to do that for 40 years now. Um, if you look down in the lower right corner, that's the land of Midian. That's where he goes into exile. Egypt is over on the left side, so he, he crosses uh, the Sinai Peninsula to get away from, from Pharaoh. But what we're going to see now, after 40 years as a shepherd, God's going to appear to him in the famous burning bush episode, right? God shows up after 40 years of nothing, apparently. God suddenly shows up, and that's how he operates sometimes. It can be a long time where you're not hearing anything from God. It doesn't seem. And then suddenly he appears. So God gives Moses the new assignment. Hey, I want you to go back to, to Pharaoh and get my people out of, of Egypt. Take them on to the promised land. Now, if you read through the interchange between Moses and God in Exodus 3 and into 4, he repeatedly resists, but God persists. God gets his way. Um, one thing I want to bring to your attention, though, is if, as you read through that sequence, there's one really critical passage where Moses asks God, say, well, if I go to uh, the children of Israel and say, like, who sent me? This is God's answer. He says... God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this whole business of I am declares God's self-existence, his essential being. He just is. He's the God who is. He is always, has always been. We have derived being. We exist because God makes us exist. He has essential being. He exists because he, he exists. Really critical part of scripture, so it's important to, to remember that. All right, so now we get to the point where we're talking about the battle for freedom, right, where he goes back, and, and many of you probably know the story. Uh, he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh, of course, resists, uh, as God said he would. In fact, he makes the Hebrews' lives even worse. He makes things harder for them. If you read about it in the story, uh, like, He's got them making bricks for all the construction projects he's got going on. And apparently straw is part of the brick-making process. And, but now he tells them, look, we're not even going to supply straw to you anymore. Go get your own straw to make these bricks. And oh, by the way, the quota of bricks is the same. You've got to keep the same output even though uh, we're not helping you anymore. You've got to do it all yourself. So, of course, they were, they were greatly pleased with that, of course, right? No, not, not at all. They turn around to Moses and Aaron and say, 
the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. But understand, the people were really beaten down at this point, right? They had broken spirits, the harsh slavery. Uh, they were a little bit edgy, as you might imagine. Anyway, the battle escalates through the ten plagues. You can read all about it, Exodus 7 through 12. But it culminates in the final plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn, of animals and, and humans. But it's also the institution of the Passover. Uh, that's where um, God told Moses, tell the people, take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, and paint the blood on the doorposts of your houses. And that way, when this death angel passes through Egypt to strike down all the firstborn, he will pass over your house, and your firstborn won't be killed. Um, Israel did that, despite all of their uh, hardship and, and, uh, and doubts before, they followed through with God's plan in the Passover, and they were spared. All of Egypt lost their firstborn. Now this Passover, this is an interesting thing. If you ever get the chance to go through a Seder meal where they celebrate the Passover with a Messianic Jew, you really got to do that. In fact, find one. Just go find one somewhere and make sure you do that. It'll happen near, the, uh, near Easter time, typically. Um, there's so much symbolism in the Passover celebration of, of the Savior, of Christ. It's unbelievable. It's really, really cool. Uh, even just from the little bit I've told you, right? The sacrificial lamb. Christ is called the lamb who was slain. The blood is the thing on the doorpost that saved the Israelites from the death angel. The Christ's blood is what saves us. It makes atonement, right, for our sins so that we might be saved forever. It, really good stuff there. All right, but so now uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had just about had enough of the Israelites at this point because... Man, God was making it so hard on them. All those plagues, and now they've lost their firstborn. So they kick them out. All right, go, get out. And interestingly, God lead, leads them what seems into like a trap. Here's the way it reads. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Uh, let me show you on the map here a little bit about what I'm talking about. So there, here's up in Egypt. Uh, we've got the children of Israel finally being let go. The promised land is going to be up here. right? And the easiest route would be to follow the Mediterranean along all the way up through there problem is there's a whole bunch of people already there and this big group of a million strong or whatever trying to march through all that that's not going to go over easy and there'll be resistance from the locals so instead God leads them down this way okay this is the western arm of the Red Sea as it juts up between the Sinai Peninsula and Egypt over there and and so that's where they're where they're going um, so what we see now, oh, hold on, let me go back. Okay, so, but what happens is now, Pharaoh starts rethinking this. Now hold on now, we just had slave labor a million strong, <laughs> we just let them all go. Who's going to make our bricks? Who's going to build our, all our stuff? 
So he goes after him. He says, no, we're going to bring him back. Of course, now the Israelites, they're camped out by the Red Sea, and they see Pharaoh's army coming over the hills right toward them. Of course, they panic, as human beings are wont to do. But Moses, he remains resolute in his faith. And this is what he says to the people. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You have only to be silent. And of course, God does make a way, right? He makes a way where there was no way. Separates the sea. The Israel crosses on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army tries to follow him through as well, they all drown when the sea returns to its normal state and covers them all up, right? Okay, and then after that episode, now we get into the wilderness uh, story. And, you know, people are so fickle, right? They just saw all of this amazing deliverance at the hand of God. And at the first signs of trouble in Exodus 15, they begin grumbling again already. They get to this place called uh, Mara, and there's no, the water's not good, and so they start complaining, what are we going to drink? God provides for them there, and this kind of thing will be repeated throughout the wilderness wanderings, where they're complaining about something or other, and God provides. He provides, he is faithful, despite their lack of faith. In spite of their short memory, where they can't seem to remember the last time he provided for them, he continues to be faithful to them. He provides the bread from heaven, right? The famous manna, you've probably heard of that. And then all kinds of stuff happened in the history of, of the uh, wilderness wanderings. Won't get into all those details, but it's important to note that while Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the law, the children of Israel, they get impatient and they engage in idolatry. Now, I, I just I find this amazing and hard to really fully comprehend, but it tells you how naturally wayward we are, how naturally rebellious people are. After all that they've already seen, they say, I, I, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Let's build ourselves an idol and worship that. And Aaron is the one who builds it. Aaron, Moses' brother, who was a key player in the whole thing, he actually fashions the golden calf out of the jewelry and everything from the, from the people. Uh, it, it blows my mind, but that's the way we are, right? Interestingly, they have a high point a few chapters later when it comes time to actually build the tabernacle. They make such an ab abundant contribution for it that the artisans have to tell Moses, hey, tell the people, stop giving stuff. They're giving too much. So here we see a heart of generosity in the people despite just a few chapters before uh, they're engaging in gross idolatry. Fickle people, what can I say, right? In the end, Moses got the people to the promised land. He saw the promised land, but he died as a revered leader among the people, never actually crossing over. 120 years old at that point. Um, and so, uh, I don't have time for the map. Let's move on. Um, some observations from Moses. First of all, he spent 40 years herding sheep in order to be prepared to herd the sheep of God, basically, right? God's people. The scripture often refers to people in terms of being sheep, right? Dumb, stinky, wayward sheep. And his experience 
herding actual sheep prepared him to shepherd God's people. Notice also that uh, Moses felt overwhelmed by the job that God had for him. He wasn't so keen about this idea of going back to Pharaoh and trying to confront him and all this stuff. He said this, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Anybody but me. Not the job for me. So he felt overwhelmed, even though it was God's plan. Uh, note also that Pharaoh was only the beginning of the troubles for Moses. He had a lot of trouble dealing with Pharaoh. He had even more trouble dealing with the stiff-necked people of Israel. Another thing to see is that impossible, impossible situations aren't. They just look that way. This is what Jesus said. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Um, see, when you factor God into the equation, it changes everything. We're going to explore some of these things more uh, next week. All right, let's look at Abraham now. Uh, Abraham actually chronologically is out of sequence because he's the great-grandfather, really, of Joseph, who we started out with. But I like him at the end a little bit because Paul refers to him as the father of our faith. And, uh, and so I want to, it's kind of the high point of this whole faith discussion. So let's look at this guy, Abraham. He's a godly man given great promises, including that he would be a, have a multitude of descendants. But he happens to be the husband of a barren wife named Sarah. We'll also see that this guy is pretty typical. He stumbles repeatedly, but he experiences the grace of God. We're going to see that he is a father of a beloved son, and he's given a totally outrageous command. We're going to explore that. That's going to be pretty much the climax of the episode with Abraham. And in the end, we're going to see that he was a faithful name, given a new name, a faithful man given a new name who experienced victory in, in faith. Uh, no time for that map either. Uh, <clears throat> we look at the initial development of, of uh, his spiritual being. We see that God offers a promise. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have, you're going to be great, and the whole world will be blessed through you. Subsequently, a famine develops. Uh, Abraham goes down to Egypt to find food. A wise plan. However, getting down to Egypt, he makes a cowardly departure from the faith. See, he's trying to manipulate his circumstances. Because, you see, his faith in God, his trust, isn't really quite there yet. He's afraid that when they get down to Egypt, they're going to notice how, how beautiful his wife is. And they're going to kill him so they can have her. So he says, hey, do this. Say you're my sister. Which she did, and she was taken into Pharaoh's harem. Now, the truth is, she was, in fact, his half-sister. So sort of a half-truth there, which is basically a lie, right? Basically a lie. A half-truth is a lie. Now, God steps in. You can read all about it again, but uh, he's, he keeps Sarah from Pharaoh. She's ultimately returned to Abraham, and, and on they go. A little bit more of his spiritual development we see another promise in Genesis 15. God says, though you're childless, you will have innumerable, 
innumerable descendants. Here's what it says in, in Genesis 15. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we see the beginning of, of Abraham's faith, true trust, but he's going to struggle, as we'll see, to kind of live by that faith still. Um, I will tell you this. Um, to really appreciate the impact of that statement, look toward the heaven and number of the stars, uh, we have trouble appreciating that because in our civilized world, we have a lot of ambient light. So you don't see just how full of stars the sky is at night. Uh, I was out one time on uh, the USS Enterprise for a couple of days, and when we were out in the middle of the ocean somewhere, in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, at night we went topside. And uh, this is, the Enterprise was nothing like a cruise ship. There were like no lights on this ship at all, except for a few little red lights here and there around it. And you could hardly see your hand in front of your face. It was so dark in the middle of the ocean out there. And when you looked at the, at the night sky, you would not believe the number of stars that, are, that fill that night sky, that so many of which are just too dim for us to see around here. Um, if you ever get the chance to go out on, on a cruise like that, probably not in the military, unless you're in the military, or you at least go somewhere camping in the middle of wilderness somewhere and take a look up, you'll really appreciate what this really means. Anyway, moving on. There was a delay in the full fulfillment of this promise. At this point, Sarah is now still barren and well into her 70s, Abraham himself into his 80s. He makes a cowardly departure from the marital order. They decide we're going to try and help God out with this deal here a little bit. We're going to hustle things along for them. Sarah gives Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, and the offspring from that is this son, Ishmael, but God says, no, my grace is still on you. That's not the plan. The covenant holds. You're going to have a son by your wife. And that is uh, who's going to be the fulfillment of all the promises. This is the time when Abraham, who was originally called Abram, exalted father, he now gets the name Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Uh, we continue to see this spiritual development in Father Abraham. We see a foretelling of this miraculous fulfillment of the promise in uh, Genesis 17 and 18. Abraham asks this of the Lord, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? At this point, Sarah has now gone beyond the point of being childbearing. The Lord says this, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, in the meantime, it turns out that he goes sojourning again in this land of Gerar and uh, comes across this character, Abimelech, basically the king of that local area. He didn't learn from his episode with Pharaoh, repeats the same uh, cowardly deceit before Abimelech. Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, took, sent and took Sarah into his harem. Now, it never occurred to me before I started doing the study, but at this point, remember, Sarah's 90 years old, right? She must have been something else, right? Now, 
Now, okay, so now understand, the ancients, the ancients lived a lot longer than, than we do. She's, gonna, she's not going to die till she's 127, so maybe 90 was like the old 50 or whatever. But, but come on, nevertheless, for Abimelech to have interest, uh, very, very... Anyway, uh, that's a little bit of a sidelight. Um, moving on, still, taken into the harem, but again, God steps in and keeps Abimelech from violating her. She's returned to Abraham, and then ultimately the promise is fulfilled. Uh, by Sarah, Abraham has his son Isaac when he was 100 years old. Now we start getting to the really interesting part where Abraham gets this truly, truly dreadful and almost unbelievable challenging command from God. Sacrifice your son. Now, I have to step in and make sure you understand how God operated in those days. He, he would use um, these appearances that theologians call theophanies. It's, it's where God kind of appears in some kind of physical, visible, or at least audible form, right? That's the way he was uh, doing it in those days. That's the way he did it here. He showed up and said to Abraham directly, go sacrifice your son on that Mount Moriah. He doesn't operate that so much that way in the modern era. You remember back in the Incarnation series, I told you that his primary way of reaching the world is, is what? What? It's through us, right? We are his plan A in the church age. He speaks to the world through his people. I mean, it's, it's his word as we're carrying his word to the people. But it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us that is speaking out to the world. He doesn't show up in these theophanies the way he used to before Christ. Anyway, so he comes in and tells Abraham, go, go sacrifice your son to me. This had to be utterly confusing because this seems totally out of character with God, for God, right? Nevertheless, Abraham is prompt in his obedience. The next day, he launches out toward the mountain. This is a three-day journey people. He has three long days to contemplate as he's move, walking along with his son what he's about to do. But he remains resolute, continues on the journey, and there, this is where we see the glorious climax of his life. Um, not perfect, lots of mistakes, right? But a life lived by faith. He's about to kill his son, when God steps it back in, says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do it, Abraham. It's okay. Here's a ram instead. Sacrifice the ram. But now I know that you fear God. Now, I was thinking about this in the preparation, too. It's an interesting way that that's expressed because God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. So at some level, he already knew that Abraham feared him and that he would have killed his son. But I think at least as importantly from Abraham's perspective is now Abraham knows too. The test is what confirmed that Abraham truly trusted God and was willing to go with his plan even if he didn't get it, even if it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So we see this, this, this guy Abraham uh, being the shining light in the dark world, the promise is reinforced in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
and they are blessed because it was through his line, down through Israel, that the promised Messiah would come to save everyone from their sins, right? All right, some observations from the life of Abraham. First of all, repeated moral failure isn't necessarily the end of the story. There is always grace and redemption available for those who will repent. Also, God's way is often paradoxical. That, that is, it seems kind of contradictory or illogical. It doesn't seem to make sense to us. It can only make sense from an eternal perspective. We're going to dig into some of this more next week. But this is the way Hebrews talks about the way Abraham was thinking of it. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. Now understand, this is what's going through Abraham's mind. But he had, as far as we can tell from the scripture, no example of God ever doing this before. In his mind, this is all theoretical. This would be the first test case of whether God would and be able to do that. But he reasoned, hey, God is the giver of life to begin with. If he can give life, he can certainly re-give it. He can certainly resurrect somebody who is now dead. That, only, that kind of reasoning only makes sense from an eternal perspective. I want to also mention that obedience is a necessary element of true saving faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a sermon all of its own, okay? But this is what James says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He then goes on to say, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, at face value, if you just take verse 21 out of context, you, you think, hey, James is talking about salvation by works. Well, what is that? That's not, no. See, he goes on to say Abraham believed God. That was the functional element in his salvation. It was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, in the same passage, James is going to talk about the demons. Now, the demons have no doubt about who this Jesus is. They totally, they have perfect faith in who this Jesus is. It doesn't do them any good, though. They tremble because they are living in defiance to that Jesus. James's point is that true saving kind of faith always produces obedience, always produces good works. Those are necessary elements that confirm the nature of the faith. Okay, uh, like I said, whole sermon of its own. Moving on, notice that God will test us. He's want, he wants to show us what we're really like where we really still struggle, perhaps, where we need refinement, where we're still in the process of being sanctified, where we still need to grow. All this is part of God's plan. It will include tests. Uh, notice also that God provides, but it's often not when we expect or how we desire. He's got his own agenda. And we often, often think he's really late showing up. All right, we get very impatient. But you understand, you know, when, you're, when we're suffering, we don't like it. We're not comfortable with enduring in that. But God asks us to do just that, endure. Wait, hang in there. I got a plan. I have my timing. Ultimately, the victory is found in trusting God. It unlocks all kinds of blessings. Just to wrap it up real quickly, kind of drawing some of these threads into some basic principles from our patriarchs. 
first of all, in human weakness, there's all kinds of problems. Fear, failure, confusion, anxiety, anger, self-seeking, on it goes. Uh, the fallen world also can be a very intimidating place. Lots of evil and suffering. It can be a beautiful place sometimes as well. But make no, no doubt, there's lots of evil and suffering. God is gracious, abundantly gracious. He's faithful, and he has a plan. But sometimes God's plan doesn't make a lot of sense to us. In fact, sometimes it'll see, seem downright unfair. It's paradoxical. We'll talk about this more next week. Forgiveness and restoration are included in God's gracious plan. And trusting in the God of grace with a commitment, a renewed commitment perhaps, to his plan constitutes true life success. You can try it your own way. Run off your own way. Guaranteeing you, though, that it's not going to be, at least in the eternal perspective, it's not going to have the same kind of success you could have doing it God's way. We're going to talk more about all these things. Ultimately, it's faithful people who are lights in a dark world. That is what is happening. I was talking about the spiritual war last month. It's light shining in a dark world that's making the eternal difference. Right? That's what we're called to be. That's what we need to be faithful in order to accomplish. Uh, and with that, I think it's time for the, the band to come back as I pray. Uh, Lord, let's, let's pray together as, as we approach the, uh, the end here. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for having a plan and making a way when there didn't seem to be any way. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you will drill these ideas into our hearts and minds. Draw us close to you. Uh, Lord, let us lay aside our own desires and our own agenda and follow your perfect plan. Uh, Lord, bless the people, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.